Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, a compliance evangelist and author of the Complete Compliance Handbook, back for another episode. And today you are in for a very real treat. As I have with me, Sean Rogers. Sean is lead counsel, compliance training and communications at General Motors. And he's going to talk to us today about some extraordinarily innovative things that GM has done around training. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about, so we're going to jump right into it. And first of all, Sean, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. And what uh, I even think your position at General Motors is innovative. So could you maybe start off by telling us about that? Hi, Tom. Yes, it's good to be with you again. So I think you're right. I think that the position I have at General Motors is the first thing I would start with when we talked about innovation. Um, we uh, we have a, we hired a position that was called Lead Counsel for Compliance Training and Communications. And as far as I know, I haven't heard of a similar position at other companies. Um, this this position was specifically hired to be in the compliance function. Uh, to look at the the key elements of a compliance program relating to training and communication. So right off the bat, I think GM had an unusual approach to uh, hire a position like mine, um, and and then you know to look out and find someone like me that had that had, happened to have an experience in training prior to becoming a compliance pr- practitioner. And uh, you know I was I was quite fortunate that uh, I had kind of had a midlife career crisis, went back to law school. Uh, found a niche in compliance and realized that uh, the law school background and compliance work and training would would merge together. Um, and so GM GM reached out, found me. We thought it was a good match, and uh, here I am. So uh, why does why do you think uh, it's important for training, particularly compliance training, to be innovative? So training needs to be innovative just to keep up with the evolution that naturally occurs in the workplace. You know, 15 years ago, sitting behind your laptop, taking training online was considered pretty innovative, pretty cutting edge. Um, And don't get me wrong, I still think there's a a place for online training and we use it extensively here. Um, But it needs to make sure that it evolves to keep up with the way people learn today and the way that uh, mobile devices have come online and and, uh, different kinds of learning techniques and the new generation and how they're much more aware of technology. So it needs to be innovative to keep up with how people want to learn. It also needs to stay um, engaging. And to stay engaging, it needs to be innovative. You know, there's nothing really engaging about launching a course on your computer that simply looks like a voiced-over PowerPoint. That's, that's pretty stale. That's pretty old school. Um, and I see a lot of courses that are like that. They, they use a template in every course. They just maybe add some narrations, but really, really, it's like a narrator reading slides, and that's that's not innovative. That's not engaging, um, and and it causes the training program to become stale if you do that for too long. It it bores your your learners, and pretty soon you have a bad a bad reputation as a training program. And you know, I'll, I'll kind of make a prediction in in five years. I don't think there will be much training that's still done behind a Windows PC sitting at a desk. Now, that, that will still happen. That may be one of the options. But I really think we're moving into a generation where 
training will need to be delivered to the masses in a way the masses can take it conveniently on their own time and in a way that um, matches their learning style. So I, I think it's absolutely critical if you want to maintain an effective program to, to keep your training program re- uh, fresh and innovative. So uh, I really um, I find that very interesting, your prediction that five years out, we will really will have seen a not even an evolution, but a, almost a training revolution. And you guys really appear to be on the cutting edge of that. And that really leads to my next question, which is uh, in the compliance realm, uh, risk-based training can have multiple stakeholders and multiple beneficiaries, the employees, uh, the company, third parties, consumers, um, perhaps even others. So why does GM view training as an integral part of a solution to fixing a cultural issue? Well, it's it's no secret that we've had some cultural issues in the past, and, and we really are doing a lot to overcome them. And I, and I personally believe we've done a lot. Um, I think the culture at the, what we call the new GM uh, really has improved over the past three to three to four years. Um, so when we looked at compliance training, we didn't look just at how are we going to do a course on anti-bribery or how are we going to do a course on the trade compliance issues? Um, we looked holistically at the training needs of General Motors when it comes to all kinds of compliance topics. And so um, we, we have our risks that probably are only specific to an automotive company. For example, it's critical that our cars and trucks be completely safe um, and provide the maximum po- possible protection to the, to the occupants of the vehicles. We can't survive as a company if our cars aren't safe. And so one of the training needs that GM has is to make sure its employees know how to recognize safety issues with our vehicles. What if you're driving a GM vehicle and you see something strange um, happen with it that that looks like a safety issue? What do you do as a GM employee? What is your duty to the company? So this is a very specific situation to GM, but it's absolutely critical we include that topic in our compliance training. You know, as you alluded to, training is just one element of an overall solution to helping an ethical culture, to promoting an ethical culture. It's very important, but it's not the only element. Um, I, I firmly believe that a training itself will never solve a systemic cultural problem. Um, and it will never change by itself a good, a bad actor into a good actor. There's other tools that, are, that should be used for solving those kinds of problems. Unfortunately, today you see companies, when they're, when they're faced with a problem, the first thing they do is they say, we're gonna take time out and train everybody. Well, you may be training 99% of your people that aren't the problem um, to give an illusion that you're doing something about it. Um, and so I, I'm concerned that sometimes we use training in the wrong way. But, you know, I want GM's training program to be innovative and to be best in class. Um, I also want our communications program to be best in class. I want our reporting mechanisms to be best, best in class. Um, I want our HR department to be proactively addressing issues um, that they find that that would help the culture. So unfortunately, there's that old proverb that says that the only tool you have is a hammer. Every problem looks like a nail. I don't want training to become that hammer where we're just hitting a bunch of nails that really aren't suited for a training solution. Um, so, so, you know, I think back to your question, we, we need to look at the, the program holistically and look at the company's risk profile and make sure that, that we are building a program that isn't cookie cutter that looks at GM as a whole and says, you know what, we're going to attack compliance um, as a broad issue and not just very narrow. 
Sean, we've talked about uh, the innovation, frankly, in your role at GM, and we've talked about the in- innovation in the delivery platforms, but um, it's there's a wide variety of innovations that you and GM have engaged in between those two. And I really wanted to focus on how you actually came up with the training because I found that to be innovative. So I was wondering if you might give us a few words about the training needs analysis and how you use that so innovatively. You know, so back in the day when I was doing training at other companies before I went to law school, um, I I went to several workshops and one of the things they talked about was a training needs analysis. And they also talked about a thing called the target audience analysis. I've always kind of kept those in the back of my mind and wondered how they would apply to the training space when it comes to compliance. Um, Those are common tools used for uh, talent development and for soft skills and for things like leadership training and those kinds of things. But it's interesting to to try to figure out how that applies in the compliance training space. So one of the first things I did when I joined GM was I I conducted what I I call a training needs analysis. And, And I think that's just kind of a fancy term for talking to a lot of really smart people and asking them a lot of questions about what they think the training program should look like and what it should try to accomplish. And, and once you start talking to a lot of people, you notice trends, you notice people saying the same thing. You notice people saying, you know, our training is okay, but it needs to be improved. We're forced to take the same training over and over again. Um, and so you start to see these trends that pop out from your interviews. And, and so that's what I did for the first six months at GM. I just talked to people, interviewed people, tried to develop a network and asked them what they liked and what they didn't like about training. And then I asked them what should be trained on? What, what topics do we need to cover? And so, you know, I had several objectives when I went into this activity. First of all, I knew that going into a company like GM that's been around forever, I couldn't just come in and start making massive changes. I knew I had to integrate myself and really be thoughtful and, and methodical. And so I wanted to, first of all, identify what parts of the existing training program were good, that were really worth keeping. And so that was one of my first objectives. Um, the second thing I looked at was trying to figure out what are all the different factors, I call them influencing factors, that should influence the overall training program design. Um, and I was really surprised at how many I found, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, then, of course, I wanted to identify the compliance risks. And so... You know, one of the things you always say for a good compliance program is to do a risk analysis. Well, I wanted to find out what we had figured out as we've done those kinds of analysis at GM and find out what, what are the main risks that needed to be core elements of the training program. And then I wanted to find subject matter experts. I mean, a training guy can't know everything. He, he can come in and figure out, you know, what the topics are, but there's no way I could come into GM and, and be competent to develop a course, say, on product safety. Um, or even cybersecurity. Those are risks outside of my area of expertise. And so I needed to find some partners who could serve as subject matter experts. And so the output of the training needs analysis was what I call our compliance training framework. And that really set forth the overall design of what I wanted to build as I started to put the program together. So moving to uh, one of the things you said really struck me, Sean, and which was how you worked, uh, listened, and talk to a variety of stakeholders inside GE to try to uh, come up with uh, the appropriate training. But this didn't really happen in a vacuum. And there's actually a governance structure uh, that you've helped put in place around training. So I was wondering if you could uh, detail for us the GM 
compliance training governance structure, why you think that's innovative and really how that helps you deliver uh, such a, a superior training solution? Well, when I came on board, I found out there was already a governance structure in place to decide what the required annual courses would be for GM employees. Um, and what it was is there was a small committee. Um, the chief compliance officer was on that, and our chief uh, talent officer, our vice president of, ta- of talent development, was on the on the committee. And those those are two very valuable positions. And I thought that's something I want to keep. Um, I want to keep our chief compliance officer and our chief talent officer on as the leader of the training governance board. But I wanted to see if we could make it more formal and really set forth what they should do and what we should be looking at from a training perspective. Um, the, way that, the way that they were deciding before was, was good and it was effective. They would, they would talk to the stakeholders and basically whichever stakeholders made the best case for training courses, um, they would include those um, in the program. I wanted to look at it a little bit differently. Um, so I wanted to bring on board some more stakeholders and have a little bit more extent, expanded team. And um, so we, we reached out to the safety group. We reached out to the IT team, the privacy team, the social media people. We reached out to um, what I would call your traditional uh, compliance risk subject matter experts for trade controls and for uh, anti-corruption and antitrust. We said, let's come together and figure out what a training program should look like and let's, and let's put you on the governance team so we, you can be in the room and have a seat at the table to decide you know, when your topic gets put into the curriculum and what kind of rotation we use and how these courses are structured. And then we also took a step back and said, you know, there's some other concerns we've identified in our trainings analysis that we want to address. Like we want some standards. Um, we want to have a standard set of languages that we always translate our courses into. So let's come up with an agreement that we're going to always translate these courses into the same language so that we can have consistency. And, you know, let's, let's um, figure out what other kinds of things we want that will make the user experience better, like a common vendor, perhaps, that will make all the courses have the same look and feel, common approach to learning checks and those kinds of things. So we did. We, we formed a team with the same two leaders that we had before, but we put in place a charter and a list of responsibilities, and then we came up with a set of standards. And I think that just sitting back and organizing that um, has given us um, a much better program that's much better tailored to the needs of General Motors. So I was wondering if we could maybe move now to to really going a little bit more into the weeds, Sean, by talking about what uh, GM's overall training architecture is and how is it risk-based for the risk that you've identified or at least GM has identified. Yeah, so... Tom, you know that, um, that one of the phrases that are used by the regulators and the investigators when they look at the, your training program is, is is it risk-based and is it tailored? And I think those are somewhat overlapping terms, but um, I think a risk-based program really needs to focus on training the right people. And so what I mean by that is you don't always go to the masses and train everybody. So you want to train the right people. Of course, you want to train them on the right risk. Uh, you want to go to the right level of detail. You want to make sure you're training in their language. And I, when I say in their language, I mean both their language that they speak and also the language of the business that they speak. For example, engineers and lawyers and so forth. Um, I think you want your training to be at the right frequency so that people have um, a basic level of knowledge and that's refreshed on a regular interval. Maybe not every year, but at least at a frequency that makes sense. 
And then I think you need to make your training content look and feel like things that actually could happen in the company. You want to use scenarios that, that could plausibly happen in an automotive company, for an example, um, which is one, one concern I have with just going and grabbing training off the shelf, which sometimes I think is the, the proverbial easy button when you're trying to put together a training program. Um, you know, and you can contrast that with a program that's not risk-based. It, it's pretty much the opposite. A program that's not risk-based will train everybody on every risk. You'll talk to them as if they were lawyers or engineers. Um, you may only tr only translate in one or two languages, or only only in English, perhaps. Um, and you'll say it's required every year, and and you'll use examples and scenarios that that really aren't realistic. And so, I, I think to to have the the train your architecture built correctly, you'll want to make sure you look at the, the risks and the co company's situation and culture and adapt it that way. Um, you obviously know that every company has a different risk profile. And so to make GM's program a risk-based program, I had to figure out which risks really needed to be incorporated. And I, I used the training needs analysis to do that. And I, I mentioned previously that we come up with some influencing factors. These were 16 different factors that I felt like needed to be built into the program. Um, and, and it's things you may not think about normally. Um, for example, we've had a, a monitor for the past few years um, as a result of our ignition switch matter, and the monitor has had some recommendations. And so I've had to take those recommendations and bake those into the training program. Um, we've, we've really had an emphasis on safety, um, and that's both workplace and product safety, and so we had to build those in. Um, we've had an ethical culture survey, and I've wanted to take the outputs from that and figure out how the training could uh, address some of the concerns that were pointed out in our ethical culture survey. Um, I've looked out at the automotive industry and said, what issues are being faced by other automakers that we want to make sure is not happening here? Um, and then, of course, you know, whoever built our previous training program before I came on board obviously did it with some degree of knowledge of the background of GM. And, I, and so I looked at those topics and said, you know what, those need to be included as well. And you know, I came up with 16. I just mentioned maybe five or six that we came up with. Um, but, but by melding together the needs analysis and with our risk profile, um, we came up with this architecture. And if, and if you'd like, I'll drill down a little bit more into what that architecture looks like. That would be great. Okay. Uh, I didn't want to didn't want to bore you with a lot of detail, but let me let me give you just briefly what our architecture looks like. The architecture, uh, if I were to draw it on a board, I'd draw a pyramid or a triangle, and then I'd divide it horizontally into four layers. Um, and then the base of the pyramid is obviously the broadest. That represents our broadest possible audience. Um, at GM, that includes about 70,000 salaried employees. Um, and at this level, I call this our general risk level uh, or general company risk level. Um, the focus is on awareness and our company values. And so really, this is a, a pretty fundamental base level series of courses that we put in place. We use online courses so we can train everybody. Um, and it's, it's intended to really only touch on the topics at a level that's applicable to everyone simply because they hold a GM badge. And so it, it's really like if you were to go to a college course, it would be the, like the 101 level of courses. It's the introductory uh, courses. You know, what are GM's risks? How do you identify them? Where do you go to help? Your duty to speak up, your duty to report, non-retaliation, things that are common to everybody. So that's the general company risk level. So that's, that's the first level 
of the four-layer pyramid. The second level, I call the specific risk level. And this is where you say, okay, there's some risks that really need to be focused upon. And these risks need to have their own individual courses. Um, they need to be um, in enough detail that someone that faces these risks would know how to recognize them and know how to respond. Um, and, and so this is where you find your courses like your anti-corruption course or your trade course or your antitrust course. Um, these are courses that um, really do apply to a lot of people in the company, maybe not all. And so as the pyramid gets a little, goes a little bit higher, it becomes a little bit more narrow. And so what we do here is we use online training on this level as well, with some live training as needed, but mostly online. And, and because of some limitations we have with identifying people precisely and having a huge database from our HR system, we do assign these courses to everybody. But at this level, we use what we call adaptive technologies that some innovative training companies have come up with. And this is where when you launch the course, uh, there's a series of questions that say, what kinds of activities do you do in your job? And there may be seven or eight or nine questions. And based upon your responses, the training engine will then serve up content based upon your responses. For example, this year we're doing uh, a class on export and sanctions compliance. And so we go into the course and it says, do you communicate with individuals overseas? Do you ship product overseas? Uh, do you hire foreign nationals? It asks a bunch of questions like that. And a lot of our employees will say no to everything. And so the course will feed them 10 minutes of content about that topic, just general risk topic uh, content, and they're done. But somebody that answered yes to five or six of those questions, they may have a 30 to 40 minute course. And so we try to hit that level using the adaptive technology. So people feel like, you know, this training is relevant to me and it's actually taking into consideration what I do in my job. And I, when we think that's, that's very important. So that's the specific level. Um, and that's the, that's the second level of the pyramid. Then we move up a level and the, again, the pyramid narrows even more. And this is where I call situational risk. And situational risk focuses on activities that employees might encounter and when they do encounter, they need to go somewhere to find out what they should do. Um, and this, this, let me just give you one specific example. This would be that somebody's traveling internationally and needs to hand carry a piece of technology with them. So that it focuses on, focuses on our hand carry technology. So they can, they can go out online and say, what do I need to do? And they can take a, a five minute vignette on um, our hand carry policy. Um, and so this is very narrow, the situational risk. We, we use a combination of approaches at this level. A lot of times we will know a group of individuals who do certain things over and over and over again. And so we'll send in um, our attorney or compliance officer to train them. And we'll keep records, of course, for bookkeeping purposes of who gets trained when. Um, but we also put some things online like infographics and decision trees and so forth that will help people who encounter situational risks. And then finally, at the very tip of the pyramid, the tip of the spear, this is where we um, go in and do live training using our subject matter experts. We might even bring in outside counsel. It's totally dependent. It's totally customized on the situation. Um, and we may go in like after an investigation and train. But basically, that's the highest risk activities to the highest risk exposed people. And so that forms our training architecture, going from very specific uh, at the very top down to very broad at the bottom that covers everyone. Um, and, and in general, that's, that's the architecture we use. And as we build courses, we make sure they map in to a certain level of that training architecture. Is that what you were hoping for, Tom? 
Yeah. Uh, what I really wanted to turn now to is something that's been a bugaboo for training professionals probably forever, but it's something that certainly the Department of Justice has raised uh, multiple times over the past 12 to 18 months, and that's uh, compliance training effectiveness. So I was wondering if you could give us a few thoughts on how GM tries to demonstrate training effectiveness, Sean. You're right. It is it is that holy grail that I refer to um, for training professionals. It's trying to figure out how you're going to prove or demonstrate that your training program is effective. Um, and, and you know, when it comes right down to it, I mean, I put a lot of thought into this over many years in the training profession. I don't know if you can ever actually prove conclusively that your training has been effective. There's this, there's this catch-22 that you have when you try to prove effectiveness. Um, an effective training program, if it's truly effective, it will prevent problems from occurring. That's your objective. You want to be proactive and prevent ever having the problem in the first place. However, on the flip side, there's simply no way to prove that once you've done a training program that you prevented the specific problem. You, it's, it's like proving a negative. It's, it's, you cannot show that because someone took your course, they did not cause the problem that you were trying to prevent. And, and a, a wise man once told me, you know, you can prove correlation but you'll never prove direct causation. And, and I've kept that in mind as I've tried to prove my effectiveness. And so just as a, as a simple example, I always go back to how people learn how to drive and how people drive and how people are forced to be compliant when they're driving. Um, and it's a topic near and dear to General Motors. So, you know, after 25 years of ticket-free driving, I got my first moving violation during my first month here in Michigan. Um, and, and to mitigate the damage to my driving record and to my insurance rate, I took a course on defensive driving. I'd literally had my driver's license for 35 years, but I'd, I'd literally had a driving um, record that was impeccable until I had this moving violation. This defensive driving course, I think it was effective, um, to go back to the term you used. I, I think it was effective because I know it raised my awareness of distracted and fatigued driving. And after taking the class, I realized that I was driving more defensively. I knew that, that my behaviors had changed after taking that class. Now, taking it to the point I was trying to make earlier, can I definitively say that by taking the course, I prevented an accident on my drive home from work last week? Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. I do know in my heart that it was an effective class, but I can't prove that it prevented an accident. So that's the quandary that a training program has when you try to prove effectiveness. You just, you just cannot prove that a, program, a problem was prevented by your program. And so this is, this is some of the logic I use when people ask me how I, how I know or, how I, or why I believe my, my approach is effective. First of all, um, I go back to the strategy. We build the training program based upon a well-thought-out strategy. Um, that strategy is overseen by the chief compliance officer. Um, we customize the training program to our risk profile, and we're constantly evaluating our risk profile to make sure that it maps to what we know today. Um, we base our course on those influencing factors that I mentioned previously to address our unique culture and our unique training needs. Uh, we reached out to some best-in-class uh, partners who are professional instructional designers. These companies do this for a living. They know compliance and they know training, and so we rely on their expertise. Um, to guide us and develop training materials that that are in accordance with adult learning theory. Um, we try to keep the courses engaging and relevant. Um, 
we do enforce completion requirements, um, and and our HR team they partner with us to implement consequences for non-completion. Um, and then we use some of the more traditional methods. We use end of course surveys. We ask about the relevance of the training during these surveys. We we then review the survey responses and we try to implement suggestions as part of a continual improvement program. Uh, and then we just ask our colleagues colleagues and peers for their opinions. Uh, and then we're on, honestly constantly trying to evaluate and continually improve the the materials that we use and our, our approaches to training. But you know, um, even even more importantly, and I think this is an important point, is sometimes I think we focus too narrowly on trying to say, is the training program by itself effective, when we could be looking at the overall compliance program and measuring the overall compliance program for effectiveness, and then showing that training is a part of that. Uh, and so these these ongoing compliance program surveys and evaluations are critical and they because they look holistically at all parts of your compliance program and say, you know, you've moved the bar or you haven't moved the bar from three years ago when you did your last survey. So using benchmarking technologies and, and survey technologies and interviews and so forth um, to evaluate your overall program and as well as the training element, I think that's critical. So, Sean, I'd like to end with uh, a topic that I don't really think is generally thought of as innovative, but frankly, I find it a key to innovation, and that's flexibility in a compliance training program. Can you explain your philosophy on that and why you think having flexibility is actually a key to innovation in compliance training? That's that's a great question, and, I, and I've had experience recently that will kind of illustrate the importance of that. Um, you know, things change constantly. Um, you know, you change um, officials in the government and they have a different enforcement philosophy. You change um, the risk profile. You have a have something come along that changes culturally that, that you need to adapt to. So when I put together the architecture, I thought, you know, I'm gonna put this architecture together and I'm going to map out a three-year plan, but I want to make sure that that three-year plan is flexible and adaptive to what might occur that we can't see, what's around the corner that we don't we don't know is coming. Um, and I, I previously mentioned that my learning needs assessment identified 16 influencing factors that we needed to consider. And so I've used those influencing factors to design my program for 2018, the courses we were gonna launch this year. And we came up with five courses that we were going to launch. We developed those courses, we worked with our vendors, we translated them. Um, we had them all ready to launch in nine different languages on January 2nd when everybody got back to work after the holiday shutdown. Um, I thought we were golden. I, I planned to kick back and enjoy my holidays um, at a ski resort in Idaho. Um, and, then, and then on the way home on the Friday before the shutdown, I got a phone call from our chief compliance officer and he said, we've got an issue. Our senior leadership wants us to add another course to this to the 2018 required program on workplace harassment. And so what it what it showed was that I had a blind spot. I don't even know if it was a blind spot because when I did the training needs assessment, the Me Too movement had not happened. But I didn't realize that it was going to impact my program. So what we did was we um, took a step back and said, okay, can we pull one of those courses out? And so we looked at the courses and said, yes, we can we can get away with not having this one course this year. We can move it to the following year. Let's plug in a course on anti-harassment. And then we had to go back to our vendor and say, how can we spin up a course quickly? And so what we did was we launched four of the courses as scheduled 
we messaged that we're going to have a new anti-harassment course, but it was going to take a few months to get ready. And then we targeted the launch of that for our compliance week in May. And so everybody got four courses assigned when they came back to work on January 2nd. And then for the next four months, we constantly sent out messages that this new anti-harassment course is coming, it's coming, it's coming. We're going to have it for compliance week. Um, and then we launched it. We launched it in the, in the first week of May. And um, we had over 35,000 people try to take that course in the first three days of compliance week. Um, when you have a lot of people hitting your system at the same time, doing a high bandwidth activity like an online course, you know that, that, that that's a stress on the system. And it actually did um, bog down the system for a couple of days. And we had to message around that too, you know, be patient, be patient, it will get better. Um, but the response was amazing. And it actually turned out to be a good thing. It, it turned out that, um, that that gave us a chance to really focus our company's discussion on anti-harassment during our corporate compliance week in May. And so it was, it was actually a blessing. It actually, what looked like a real problem for us um, turned into be the proverbial finest hour for us because it enabled the company to come together around the topic and have some really good discussions. So, you know, we couldn't have done that if we hadn't built flexibility into the program in the architecture um, with the ability to move courses around from year to year and also the ability to go to a vendor and have a, an emergency project ramp up um, to solve a problem. And hopefully that will be the case as we go forward. Like I said, I have a three-year calendar. Um, right now I know theoretically what our 2021 program should look like, but I'd bet you my bottom dollar that when it comes to 2021, the program does not look like what I have mapped out on the paper today. I, it, I, I have an aspirational target for what it should look like, but I think it will look significantly different because we'll need to be flexible because who knows what's around the corner. And I think that's, I think that's, Part of the innovation you're talking about is developing a program that will be effective to meet the needs of the moment, but flexible to adapt to what could be around the corner. Well, Sean, this has just been a fascinating exploration of a topic that I don't think gets a lot of place, certainly around innovation, and that's compliance training. And you've really laid out a methodology that a compliance practitioner or other could uh, be innovative in your in their training. So I wanted to uh, thank you for visiting with me today. Tom, it's my pleasure as always. Thank you. If you're a compliance professional looking for a convenient and effective way to fulfill your continuing education requirements, go to fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses and choose from four hour-long training packages that will keep you current. That's fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses.